Tremendous celebration, and uh, Drew, thanks for rocking us out there. Love it, huh? Love it. <laughs> this morning, we're going to ask the ultimate question. Why are we here? What's our purpose in life? You know, for thousands of years, people have been baffled as they've searched for the meaning of life. Now, as I began to search for the meaning of life, I did what any red-blooded 21st century man would do. I Googled it. (laughs) And, of course, the first thing to come up is Wikipedia. So now I know I have a scholarly, comprehensive view of the meaning of life. And what they gave us was some philosophical conjectures, how philosophy, different philosophies approach the question, and it gave us some religious answers. As I read through them, I found very often they didn't really give me an answer. They, they usually skirted the issue, or they gave me an answer that had no foundation, or they gave me an answer that just didn't resonate with the world I live in. Now, uh, Dr. Hugh Moorhead, a philosophy professor, took a different approach. He wrote 250 of the greatest philosophers, scientists, writers, and intellectuals. And he asked them the question, what is the meaning of life? And when he got the answers back, he wrote a book. Now, some took their best guess. Some of the others admitted that They just made up a purpose in life. And then some confessed that they were clueless. Some actually wrote him back and said, if you discover the meaning of life, please let me know. See, we we struggle with this because we do begin in the wrong place. We often begin with ourselves. And when we begin with ourselves, it's usually about, well, I think the meaning of life is to be happy. What's going to make me content and fulfilled? What's interesting, though, is at what age are you going to answer that question? Is your best answer when you're 13 years old as to what life should be all about? Or when you're 30 or 65? See, whenever we begin with ourselves, our answer is going to be very limited and very small. So the real beginning place is with God himself. And with him, we understand that there is much more than it just being about me. So we're going to uh, look at what God says the purpose of life is. And we're going to first see that it actually flows out of who he is, out of his very essence. Let's pray. Our Lord... You be our guide today through Scripture. You take this through your Spirit to speak into our hearts that we not be lost, that we be very clear, and that then we feel so charged today that we embrace this and move forth and live in it. Lord, we thank you that you have revealed 
that we could go, just like Gregory said, go ask God. We can go and ask you this morning, for you have spoken in your word. You have shown us in your person, especially in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen. To answer the question, uh, what's my purpose, I think we need to first answer another question. Really, the question, what is my purpose, is the flip side of the coin that says, why would God create anything in the first place? So when we can answer that question, why would God create you? Why would God create us? Why would God create people in his image? It is then that we'll understand our purpose in life. And to understand why God created us, we have to go into his very character and into his very essence, and that's where we'll find the answer. And we began to explore that last week. And remember, we peeked into the window that Jesus gave us in his prayer in John 17, the prayer he was praying just before he was going to be crucified, the prayer that spoke of what his heart was truly engaged in. And as we looked in that window, we saw a dynamic of the relationship between Father and Son, and by extension, the Holy Spirit. And what we saw is God in his very essence is a trinity. He is one God, yet in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And Bruce, author Bruce Ware, I believe, captures or summarizes what we saw last week when he says this. In this tri-personal relationship, the three persons love one another, support one another, assist one another, team with one another, honor one another, communicate with one another. In everything, they respect and enjoy one another. They are in need of nothing but each other throughout eternity. Such is the richness and fullness in the completion of the social relationship that exists in the Trinity. Get this. Because it's saying two very important things. First of all, that God is all about relationships. He is about a mutual, supporting, loving, mutually glorifying relationship within himself. God the Son doesn't revolve his life around himself. He revolves it around the Father. The Holy Spirit doesn't revolve his life around himself. He revolves it around his Father. C.S. Lewis described it as a beautiful dance. Partners moving together as one. Experiencing the, the beauty of the music. They come together and they are flowing in a mutual, joyful experience with each other. I prefer to call it a party. So, if God is a relationship, he is a relationship, the second thing Bruce Ware brings out is God is completely satisfied. He is completely fulfilled in that interpersonal relationship. He doesn't need anything outside of himself. He doesn't need anyone else to make his relationship, his joy, more full than it already is. 
So why would a God who is already completely satisfied, doesn't need anything else, why would he determine to create a universe and to create people in particular who are made in his image? And, and I want to uh, illustrate this by considering two, uh, two scenarios. Imagine you're on a all alone on a desert island. Now you want somebody to join you. Why do you want someone else to join you? You want them to join you because you're alone. You want companionship. You want somebody you can love and somebody who loves you. You need somebody else. You see... If God is a unipersonal God, and what I mean by that, he's not a trinity. He's simply God, one person, uh, kind of the way the Jews look at God or the Muslims look at God. That God is like a God on a desert island. He does not have any relationships until he creates. And so he may well have created for selfish reasons. I need somebody else, and I will love you so that I can get love in return. And most people actually look at God in that way. They think God created the world because he needed us. He needs our glory. He needs our worship. He doesn't. Do you love God the Father more than Jesus did? Can you glorify God the Father better than Jesus glorified? We can't. We don't add anything to it. But Consider this scenario. You're at a party. Every person you love is there. Any person you would ever want is there. You are having the most fun possible. You are having the greatest joy. There's nothing that can add to your party. Why would you invite someone else to that party? completely for their sake. You would invite them so they could come in and enjoy what you are enjoying. You see, that's the triune God. He has the perfect party already within himself and that relationship of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But that love is so great, it just overflows and says, I want others to experience what I am experiencing and therefore I'm going to create people in my image. Now, I like to use the imagery of a party because that's the imagery that Jesus himself uses. His first miracle, who remembers, what, what, we, what was Jesus' first miracle? Wedding. wedding! He turns water into wine at a wedding feast. You know, I've considered that. That's Jesus' breakthrough moment. That's when he comes onto the scene with a big pop-gun miracle. Right? I mean, why doesn't he come on? It's always, I've always wondered, why doesn't he come onto the scene with this, you know, I love what Moses would have done. Part the Red Sea and everyone would go, wow, that's God. And everybody in the world would see it. And, and it would be freeing a people. And you go, that's the way you start. Or Jesus could have at least given a blind man's sight. Or cast out a powerful demon that was controlling somebody, or, or calm the stormy sea, or raise somebody from the dead. That's the way to come on the scene. 
But then I realized that John always says the miracles are signs. They're signs. They're telling you something. And what we realize is that Jesus' first miracle is there not to save embarrassment of a couple because they ran out of wine. It's there because it's the sign of what Jesus, what life is all about and what Jesus' ministry is all about. Jesus is coming on and saying, my ministry is all about bringing you celebratory wine. It's all about bringing you into a party, in particular, a marriage banquet. Because in the marriage you have that perfect oneness relationship, that perfect union, and the celebration and the joy in it. And Jesus is saying, that's what life is all about. And we see Jesus continually teaches this. When he talks about his ministry, what does he say? He says, I bring new wine, and we can't put it in old wineskins. What is new wine? It pictures celebration and joy and a banquet and a party. And Jesus says, I'm not going to take why I came and my ministry and put it into the old wineskins of legalism and religious activity. And Jesus' parables, think of how many of those are actually about parties. Or the parable of the prodigal son that so many of us know. When the prodigal son comes back, the father runs out to him, and what does he do? He kills the fattened calf and throws the greatest party the land has ever known. And that parable is there to express the heart of God. At the Last Supper, Jesus took one of the cups and he said, I'm not going to drink of the fruit of the vine until I drink with you when God's kingdom comes. You see, Jesus is all about the party, bringing us in to that oneness relationship that he is experiencing, the fullness of joy. So, now, what does that mean for our lives? You know, for many outside the church, they think the Christian life is a life of drudgery and joylessness. I remember, it's kind of found in the adage, if it's fun, it must be sin. And that's often the picture they get of the Christian life. That's not the picture Jesus was bringing us. And for those inside the church, sometimes we live out the Christian life as though it's some drudgery. Although there's a joyless having to measure up to the standards of God and we strive and we try and we can't make it. That's not what it's all about. Jesus showed us what it's all about. So, if we now understand this side of the coin, God's reason for creation, we now can answer the question, what's my purpose? My purpose in life is to enter into the union that God has within himself. My purpose is to enter into the party. That's a pretty cool purpose, isn't it? To enter into the party of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus said it. He said, I have come. My purpose for coming is to bring you life. Now, some people scratch their head and say, life, I'm already alive. What do you mean? Jesus is talking about something else, isn't he? 
What is life? Life is in Jesus himself. Life is what Jesus has experienced in his relationship with Father and Son, Holy Spirit. And then he says, I came that you might have life and have it what? Abundantly. Sounds like a party to me. The Father sent the Son for that very reason. John 3.16, for God so what? Loved the world, that love just overflows into the world. The world that rejected him. When we moved, rejected him, we moved outside that circle of love that God created us for. And so God sought us. He loved us so much. He sent his son so that when we believe, what do we get? Eternal life. Now what's eternal life? John 17, 3, when Jesus prays his prayer, he tells us what eternal life is. Eternal life is to know God the Father and Jesus Christ whom the Father sent. You see, life is all about knowing God. Not just knowing about God, but personally knowing and fully experiencing the dynamic of who he is and entering into that dynamic. Coming into the ultimate party. So, what is going to happen, or what's supposed to happen at that party? You could ask, Gordon, how do you dress for it? And I'll say, you dress in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, for one. But what's happening at that party? Well, whatever is happening between the Father and the Son is what's happening at that party. And one of the things we saw last week very, very clearly is love. So God wants us to experience his love and to know him. Jesus said something very, very powerful in uh, John 15. He says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Remain in my love. You get that? He says, you know what I want from you? I want you to remain in my love. As I love the Father, the same measure of love, the same kind of love, the same amount of love that Jesus has for the Father he has for you. And what he wants you to do is remain in that, to abide in it, to live in it, to experience to the fullest. And when we do that, when we enter into a love relationship and we feel that love, in turn, we give that love. Remember the rich young ruler came to Jesus and he said, what's the most important, what's the greatest commandment in all of the Bible? And Jesus said, love God. He didn't stop there though, did he? He said, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. He said, that's the foremost commandment That is what it is all about. God wants us to love him. But not a love that we have to well up and try to to build up in our lives. It's a love that will be natural when we are so loved. 
And John said it. We love because he first loved us. And so when we understand God's love for us, when we experience that to the fullness, our hearts begin to bubble up. As one character said in a movie, love is Geronimo. We are so captured by it that we can't help now in turn say, I want to pour out my love to you. I want to pour out my life to you. I beg you, tell me what it is that pleases you, that says to you, I love you. What's your love language, God? And Jesus said this, if you love me, you keep my commandments. Not just because, okay, here's a test to see how much you love me, but my commandments are love itself. I want you to live in my love so when you begin to experience my commandments is love, so when you obey me and your commandments aren't a burden, that means we are getting it. We are getting the love poured out through God's commands and drawn into those in responding in love by following him. If obeying God's commands is drudgery, we haven't gotten it yet. We haven't entered into and remaining in that love as God would have us. There's a second thing that takes place at the party. And that's glory. In John 17, 1, when he is praying, and as we said, in, the, in that prayer we see the window of the father-son relationship. He starts with, Father, glorify me that I may glorify you. And Jesus starts with, it, it's about glory. And Father, I, I want to be glorified. I want you to honor me and treasure me and value me. And that's what we all experience. If there's someone we love, we want that person to treasure us, to value us. We don't want them casting us aside. But there's a greater reason that Jesus wants the Father's glory. It is an expression of the Father's love. But he says, I want you to glorify me so that I can bring glory to you. Because so it's really mostly about the glory that Jesus wants to bring the Father. And when you really have that perfect love relationship, you look for ways to, to lift up that person you love. To hold them up high. I mean, how many of you go to the banquets or the, the award ceremonies of your children? And they get up and they receive the award and you're there and your heart's going, why? Because I'm such a wonderful parent? No. You're there because you love them and you love to see them honored and treasured and glorified. And, you know, that's really what glorify means. Glorify means to value, to hold something as important the, uh, Pastor Brandon often says we come to do what? Make much of God. What do you mean? To lift him up, to hold him up, to, to make him the center, to, to uh, grasp his ultimate value and respond to that. The Hebrew word for glory is heavy or weighty. Now, I would prefer to have a ton of gold rather than an ounce of gold. I'll take either, but I'd prefer to have a ton of gold rather than an ounce of gold. Why? Because it's weighty, it's heavy, and the heavier it is, the more valuable it is. The more glory it has. And we've used the words that way. 
Uh, he's doing some heavy lifting. What does that mean? It means he's doing something very important, very significant. Or that's a weighty matter. It's not light, it's weighty. It's very important. And of course, the, from the 60s, when somebody says something profound, we go, that's heavy, that's heavy. <laughs> Glory is all about the value, the importance, the weight. To glorify God is to say, God, you are the most important, valuable thing in this universe and in my life. The heavens, Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. So when you look out at the expanse of the universe and realize God made it, you sit back and go, wow, God is so big. He is so grand. He is the all in all. What am I that he would even consider me? And Paul said in Romans, for us, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To God be the glory forever. And in 1 Corinthians, he tells us, whatever you do, do to the glory of God. Now, does this make God narcissistic? egotistical? That's what some people think. I've actually had these conversations where somebody says, well, what's your purpose in life? And I says, to glorify God. And they go, boy, you have a narcissistic God. And for a while, I didn't know the answer to that until I realized, no, if I had a God on a desert island, I would have a narcissistic God who needed my glory. But I have a triune God who already has the greatest glory. No, he wants glory because it's due his name. Because to experience him to the fullness, and that's what life is about, we need to relate to him to the fullness of who he is. And in that, we bask in his glory. You know, Boston is the city of champions, right? And so when the Red Sox or the Patriots or the Celtics or the Bruins, all we've had these in the last decade, when they win a championship, what do we do? We throw a big party. The whole city, there's a party. And, they, and the Celtics or uh, Bruins, we'll use the word, they get on the duck boats and they go through the city and everybody is praising them and glorifying them. And do we sit there and go, wait a second. How narcissistic are the Bruins or the Celtics or the Red Sox? Man, they're making it all about themselves. No, we don't do that. In fact, they left their families. They've already had their celebration. They have celebrated and celebrated and celebrated. What they are doing is sharing their glory with us. And how do we respond? We are out there cheering for them and honoring them and praising them and glorifying them. And it is the greatest, biggest party, most fun you can have. See, that's what worship is supposed to be. We lift up the glory of God. We see the glory. We celebrate it. And we are caught up in it, basking in it, and enjoying it. So, what have we said so far? We said our purpose in life is to know God, to enter into that triune love, glory, relationship with Him. Experience that to the fullness. 
And you know, that sounds a lot like a hundred-year-old creed. The Westminster Shorter Catechism asked the question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. You know, we got the glorify it down, right? The enjoy Him forever is really what? Entering the joy of the love relationship with Him. And so what we're saying is what the Westminster Confession says. I would like to add one more piece. And I find it in Jesus' prayer. In John 17, 22, he prays this. He's been praying about his relationship. He's actually prayed that uh, we would enter into the relationship that God has with the Son. And he now prays this. Father, I have given them glory. I gave them the glory you gave me so that they may be one with each other as I am one with you. You see, the Father's love is so great that when you come into the party and other people are coming into that party, He doesn't want you just loving and glorifying Him. He wants you having that same experience with everyone else in the party. You know what that's called? It's called the church. That's us. And so our purpose is to love God and to glorify God, but it is also to love each other in the same way that the Father and Son love each other. Now, we don't have time to explore that fully. We're going to do that in the fifth sermon in this series, the Trinity and the Church and its mission. But suffice it to say for now, I hope we begin to get a whole different picture of what the church is. It isn't about coming together with some like-minded people. It's about actually coming into a oneness. But God's love is so great. He loved the world even though they had rejected him. We have the Trinity who has expanded into a great party, the church. But God says, I want you to invite those who are still outside to come and experience what you're experiencing. That's called evangelism. And God's love is so great for them, he says, I still want you to love them as I love you. Serve them. Love them and serve them. Why are we here? It's to know God. Knowing Him means loving Him glorifying Him. And remember the greatest commandment said, love God with everything you are, but there's a second like it. Love one another. Everything is summed up in these two commandments. You know, Jesus' first miracle was at a party. They're enjoying it, they're celebrating, there's some Half-decent wine, I guess, and they're relating to each other, but the party's about to stop. They ran out of wine. And so Mary's mother comes to him, knowing he can do something about it, says, uh, they're out of wine. Jesus has a very peculiar answer. He says, 
It's not my hour. And then he goes and turns the water into wine. It's not my hour. You know what it means when he says it's not my hour? He says it a number of times until the John 17 prayer when he says it's my hour. He's talking about it's not his time to die and offer sacrifice for us. You say, what's going on? She just asked to make some wine. Why does he, his response is, I don't want to die. It's not my time to die. It's because there's two meanings for wine. One is the celebration, the cup that we are going to ultimately drink with Jesus in the wedding banquet that we have with him for eternity. The second meaning is the blood of Jesus Christ. For Jesus to give us that ultimate party, it would cost him his life. Jesus paid for the, our party with him, with his blood. While we were yet sinners outside, God demonstrated his love for us, that Christ died for us. Let us glorify.